I'm delighted to uh, welcome our guest onto the show this evening, James Giles, Councillor James Giles, who's a uh, councillor down in Kingston-upon-Thames, an independent councillor down in Kingston-upon-Thames. He's also a part-time sophologist. He's, he's been on the show before. Some of our regular viewers, I'm sure, will remember James when he came on uh, with uh, a, another guest uh, speaking about the uh, recent uh, elections and want to talk about the uh, future prospects for uh, the uh, elections uh, next year, amongst other things. So uh, welcome to the show, James. Good to have you back, mate. How are you? Pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, well, thanks for taking the time out to to speak to us again. We we appreciate that. Um, but uh, yeah, there's a few things I just want to uh, talk to you about. And obviously, uh, one of the things that we've been focusing on quite a bit is the dreadful scenes in Gaza and the uh, genocide that's being perpetrated by the Israeli regime. And uh, we know now that the I think the casualties are uh, around 20,000, uh, 7 or 8,000 children have been killed. And what's been particularly troubling, I think, from our perspective, certainly uh, my perspective anyway, is that the uh, lack of um, support for a ceasefire as a bare minimum from uh, uh, frontline politicians in Parliament, we saw a vote being... Um, lost by a substantial uh, margin, uh, the Labour Party predominantly abstaining on it. Um, we saw the United Kingdom abstaining at the United Nations Security Council when there was a resolution to bring about a permanent ceasefire, and they, they vetoed it on the first occasion, and they, they abstained, I think it was last week, when there was another uh, attempt to try and uh, force a, a, a ceasefire through. So the, the politicians have, have desperately let us down and it's not just the, the, the politicians in Westminster. We've also seen a, a, a lack of support from councillors as well. And I know there's been quite a bit of pressure being put on town halls up and down the country to uh, urge councillors to, you know, express their revulsion and uh, an opposition to what's happening and to, you know, to take some practical steps to try and, you know, put pressure on the policymakers to do the right thing. Now, no. You, James, you've been coordinating a, a letter from uh, councillors uh, calling for a ceasefire. So perhaps you could just start really by telling us a, about that, what prompted you to do that and what kind of support you've received so far for the letter. Yeah, sure, by all means. So you're quite right. Uh, I co-authored an open letter uh, which was addressed to the Prime Minister, the leader of the opposition, and indeed all MPs uh, who represent constituencies across the United Kingdom, urging them to support an immediate humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza. Uh, request for uh, endorsement, if you like, a request uh, to sign that letter, was sent to all 19,000 councillors, uh, England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland, all parties and none. I'm pleased to say that over 1,000 councillors and counting uh, have spoken up, have put their heads above the parapet uh, to call for a humanitarian ceasefire in Gaza, often against uh, significant uh, pressure from their parties to stay silent. A number of councillors, especially Labour and Conservative, uh, choosing to sign the letter anonymously for fear of reprisals from their party machines and party whips, which really is a sorry state for uh, our democracy to be in. Having said that, uh, you know, a good number of people uh, have given their political life's blood standing up for the oppressed around the world. You, uh, dare I say, are, are one of them. 
And, you know, since this uh, request for endorsement was sent out to councillors, uh, I've faced a torrent of uh, abuse and indeed, uh, you know, the systems and powers that be have frankly tried to shut it down. The supposedly uh, non-partisan local government association, uh, which is meant to be the national voice of local government, uh, decided to suspend me from my role on the city regions board. Now, quite what uh, Israel-Palestine has to do with improving urban spaces is beyond me. Uh, but they decided to take that action, uh, and that is a suspension that is uh, currently under review. Uh, and indeed, my co-author of the open letter, perhaps surprisingly, a Conservative councillor alongside me in Kingston, or should I say a now former Conservative councillor, uh, also facing retaliation from his party. Uh, but I'm pleased to say he now sits with me as an independent in Kingston, uh, and we now form the main opposition on the council, not the Conservatives. So, you know, there's swings and roundabouts. But all of this, I'm, I'm afraid to say, uh, the furore and the faux outrage on social media has detracted from the main issue at hand, uh, which is the killing of innocent women, innocent children uh, in Gaza and the uh, continuing humanitarian crisis and catastrophe that's going on there. That is what people have tried to do. They've tried to deflect attention away from the issue and instead uh, make it all about me, which it really isn't. Incredible. Uh, James, what to, reason did the LGA, the Local Government Association, give for suspending you? Was it simply about the letter or did they, did they, did they make up some other story? To Well, well look, in, in the letter, in the, in the email that was sent to councillors, we said that in the interest of accountability, we'd also published a list of names of councillors who were invited to sign but chose not to. Now, let me be clear. This has been deliberately misconstrued by people who would never have dreamed of signing, signing the letter in the first place uh, to mean we're going to publish uh, every councillor's name uh, in the country, which would be moronic because it would waive the anonymity offered. But, you know, councillors who write to me comments like, as one councillor did, Gaza should be raised to the ground. Frankly, those people should be held accountable for their views, uh, just as I'm held accountable uh, for mine. And I've been held accountable and then some uh, by people who clearly do not support a ceasefire. Now, this uh, line was taken uh, as the reason for suspension. It was deemed a threat uh, to councillors by the local government association. But, you know, this is complete codswallop. Uh, politicians and political parties regularly name politicians who do not agree with their point of view. The National Green Party recently gave a list of MPs who refused to back a ceasefire. I applaud them for doing so. Even Sir Keir Starmer uh, released a list of names of Tory MPs who did not vote to extend free school meals. I have a lot to say about Sir Keir Starmer, but frankly, he was right to do that. And finally, perhaps the most egregious, and this is maybe where it does border, uh, you know, something a bit more sinister. You know, Alistair Campbell last year tweeting, if you have a Tory MP, go and find them this weekend and let them know what you think of what's just happened. This was with respect to a vote about the discharge of sewage. Now, you know, what I'm suggesting, frankly, is holding 
elected representatives accountable. It may make people feel uncomfortable. They may not wish to be held accountable for their views. But frankly, if they don't want to be held accountable, then they shouldn't be putting themselves forward for public office in the first place. Uh, Mm -hmm. But it was far from a threat. You know, this has been deliberately misconstrued by people uh, who would never have signed the letter in the first place. No, indeed. I was interested in what you said, James, about the fact that a number of councillors have, have signed it uh, anonymously. I mean, that's a, a curious uh, state of affairs. Um, I know there's a line in the Labour Party uh, anthem, which isn't really appropriate for the Labour Party anymore, but the red flag. But it says, oh, cowards, where it says, though, cowards flinch and traitors sneer. It seems that um, there's a good deal of, of cowardice out there, isn't it? I know that people are, are being pressured by their uh, parties, but... Uh, you know, if you're in an elected position, surely, in my opinion, you know, you should stand up for what's right. I, think, I mean, you know, maybe people look to my case and think, well, actually, he stood up for what's right and look what happened to him. You know, he got kicked out of the party. But, you know, I just think having an elected position, um, you know, just put you under an obligation, really, to to speak out. I mean, at least I guess some of them are, are putting their names, as you say, anonymously. There may be many others who would wish to sign it, but, you know, are he prepared to do that uh, anonymously? I mean, what, what do you make of this uh, this level of, of cowardice and indeed intimidation, which is which is prompting this this cowardice to rear its head? Well, I think it's a great travesty, and it's a real sad uh, indictment of the state of British democracy as it currently stands. Uh, I'm not surprised by it. Uh, I may add, um, I had one Conservative councillor in the neighbouring borough of Sutton in South London write to me. Uh, with a torrent of abuse adding, uh, you know, don't expect to work with us anytime soon. We don't back this, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, A number of profanities in there as well, which I won't repeat. Uh, The irony was, and I took great joy in writing back to this councillor to say, your ward colleague has signed this letter. Oh, really? Yeah. 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 Interesting, yeah. And another Sutton Conservative councillor, has signed anonymously. And when I see how you're writing to me, it does not surprise me that colleagues feel the need to write anonymously because your language uh, is uh, obscene, quite frankly, um, and entirely inappropriate for anyone uh, who holds elected office. With respect to the Labour Party, uh, I may say, and this is just me, Uh, sort of analysing the patterns in the data that's coming through. It's staggering the number of councillors who are due to be re-elected in May or due to have elections in May who have signed anonymously. And I think there's a fear, particularly among those who are coming toward the end of their term, who wish to stand again, that the Labour Party will rain down on them like a ton of bricks if they speak out. And look, we've seen uh, over the last four years and beyond, you know, from your good self to the dozens of councillors who have been suspended for speaking out on various issues, uh, to MPs who have been suspended uh, pending a spurious investigation that seems often to take many years, um, hopefully with a view that it won't have completed by the time of the next election, if I'm being cynical. So I can understand why people uh, don't wish to put their name uh, to something uh, quite as bold. Uh, but my point uh, is is this, quite frankly. If you don't want to stand up for what you believe in, what's the point of doing it in the first place? 
Yeah, I'm doing parts right. That's certainly my my view, and was always the view I held all the way through my time as a as a member of the Labour Party, and I was a member for nearly forty four years, and I was a an elected member uh, for about twenty seven years on local authorities and in and in and in Parliament, and uh, I always felt it was appropriate to you know to speak up for what you believed in, and indeed you know the Labour Party did, you did even under Tony Blair. <laughs> let's be honest about it, did use to tolerate. Um, you know, dissension, as it were. Um, I mean, and, and indeed, George Galloway, I just want to go on to, to talk about in a moment, when, when he was expelled uh, from the party, when he went to the kangaroo court hearing to put his case, he was flanked by um, Tony Benn and uh, and Michael Foote, who were speaking on his behalf. And I believe that uh, Jeremy Corbyn and various others were outside on a picket of the National Executive Committee meeting supporting George's uh, position and, uh, you know, calling for any disciplinary action against him to be dropped and for his place to be, you know, sustained in, in, in the Labour Party. And they, they, they received no disciplinary um, action as a consequence of that. And yet now if people speak out for, for people. Indeed, that was one of the, the main reasons that, that I was attacked was for, was for speaking out for, for grassroots activists and, and prominent uh, activists, people like Tony, uh, it's like uh, Biggie Pardon, Ken uh, Livingston, and uh, Jackie Walker, and uh, Tony Greenstein, and various other, you know, high-profile um, uh, activists, and, and you know that was used uh, as, a, as a pretext to uh, to kick me out, and was I was alleged to be guilty of a pattern of behaviour of uh, facilitating anti-Semitism, total nonsense, of course. But just moving on though to um, to, to to George. Um, now he's somebody, and we've talked about cowardice, who who was a very antithesis of of, of cowardice, and uh, somebody who has always spoken out uh, for what he believes in, and and, and spoken up for uh, the underprivileged, uh, and spoken out against the war machine and and imperialism. Um, you know his his record is is unimpeachable, really. I mean, a lot of people may not be aware that you know George, as a young man, was uh, working undercover in apartheid South Africa, putting his his life on the line. So. You know, his record speaks for itself. And, of course, as I've just said, George George suffered uh, at the hands of um, the uh, the party when he was uh, – uh, the Labour Party, that is, and was was, was expelled from, from the party. Um, but after that, he, he founded uh, the um, uh, the Respect Party and, and got elected um, and then got uh, lost his seat, though, in the 20 – that was at the 20, 2005 election, and he lost it in – in, in 2010, but then won a by-election, famous by-election in in Bradford, and uh, but regrettably uh, he wasn't able to hold on to it uh, uh, in the subsequent uh, election. Um, some question marks about what what went on in the background there, but uh, that being said, that's that's what happened, and he he put in a very creditable performance in the Batley and Spen by-election. Actually, I went up and campaigned for for George for about a fortnight up there, and you know the support for him was 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 palpable. Um, but uh, unfortunately, he didn't get quite over the line. However, as you know, James, he has announced his intention to stand for the mayor of, of London. And I think given, you know, George's record in, you know, speaking out for the people of Palestine and, and speaking out against the Zionist entity, the Israeli regime, and, and given the level of, uh, of anger and revulsion at the um, Israel's uh, genocide that they're perpetrating in in Gaza now, and you know, given that there, you know, feelings are running very very high, and, and and in London in particular, there is a huge cohort of of uh, of support for the for the Palestinian people. I wonder, 
given George's intention to to stand for mayor, what, what you think is uh, chances are of success? He, he did get a, a, a quite a good vote, I think, last time. I think it was over a hundred thousand. The, the the system of electing the mayor this time is is different. It's not the um, preferential vote system, is it? It's uh, it's the first past the post system. So. Just tell us about what you, what you make of George's uh, candidature and, and what you think his, his chances are, his prospects are of, of actually pulling off a, a, a um, you know a famous victory. Sure. I mean, look, you're quite right when you say, first of all, this will be the first elections in London uh, which will not have been elected on a first-choice, second-choice basis. Um, this will be simple, straight, first-past-the-post. I would expect there to be some 20 candidates, if not more, as there was in the last London mayoral election, which was delayed until 2021 because of COVID, um, which you know reduces the percentage vote you need to win, quite frankly. Um, Susan Hall, uh, the Conservative candidate, widely seen as the main challenger to Sadiq Khan, I think by the day is proving herself to be uh, widely unfit for the job um, and, dare I say, delusional and mad. Um, most recently going on the airwaves across London on LBC uh, and indeed talk TV across the country to say that her purse had been stolen on the London Underground when, in fact, she had dropped it and a good Samaritan had handed it into lost property, um, merely trying to score a political point about crime on the Underground. So I think actually the more voters get to know and hear Susan Hall, uh, the less inclined they will be to vote for her. Uh, Sadiq Khan is not uh, a popular mayor uh, across London, especially in outer London. Uh, the ultra-low emission zone expansion uh, has caused uh, a groundswell of people uh, opposing it, particularly in the boundaries of London. Uh, the largest Facebook group against ULES has over 80,000 members. Uh, crime under Sadiq Khan has skyrocketed, and don't forget he is the ultimate commissioner of the uh, metropolis, of the Metropolitan Police, um, and under his watch, uh, you know, the foot has just been taken off the pedal. Uh, he claims to have built numerous affordable homes. Well, as most of us know, his definition of affordable, which he changed, uh, is not truly affordable for the vast majority of working people uh, across London. And, of course, TfL uh, still is running a deficit and is reliant on government handouts. Uh, you know, they may not even be able to buy new trains that are due to enter commission on the Piccadilly line next year. So there's a litany of failures uh, that can be rightly levied at Sadiq Khan. Uh, and with the right campaign, I do think Sadiq Khan is uh, a very much a beatable uh, candidate. Um, he is vulnerable. The Conservatives have chosen a pup. Uh, so it certainly won't be them. Uh, so it'll be really very interesting. I mean, you mentioned George's election in 2005. That was in the Bethnal Green and Bow constituency, uh, which is in East London, in Tower Hamlets. Uh, so I would expect him to get a good deal of support there. Tower Hamlets, of course, in 2022, in the local elections, ousted the Labour Party in favour of a left-wing um, localist party led by Lutfi Rahman, who was the former mayor of Tower Hamlets. They have a majority control on the council. And if we look to two recent by-elections in the London borough of Newham, also in East London, 
uh, independence have broken through there and now again, like in King- Kingston, form the main opposition uh, to the administration. Uh, and Labour suffered what can only be described as a landslide defeat in that most recent by-election in Plasto North, where previously they captured some 70% of the vote. That dropped to low to mid-30s. I don't have the exact figures. So Labour really are on the ropes uh, in some parts of London. And there is an opportunity, I think, for uh, someone who is pro-justice, pro-peace, pro-Londoner, to capitalise. Yeah. I mean, of course, George has got a lot of experience in local government as well. I mean, many people will know of him, obviously, as a a parliamentarian and then obviously as a broadcaster. But... um, in his younger days, he was the leader of uh, Dundee Council, very, very, very um, innovative uh, leader of uh, of Dundee uh, Council. So you know he, he's got the um, experience, albeit from from some time ago in in local government. And I think uh, you know, were he to be able to make a breakthrough, I, I you know I think he would be a, an excellent um, mayor of, of London. And you know, look, it's been done before, hasn't it, James? Where an independent, uh, you know, has, has stood when when Ken Livingston was was done over by the Labour Party and uh, not uh, selected, even though he was the the popular choice for uh, uh, grassroots uh, members, and he stood as an independent and, and, and won. And then Blair panicked at the next election and, and invited him back into the party, so so he wasn't going to get defeated again. What, what sort of um, you know, with your sophology uh, uh, sort of expertise, uh, James, and given that it is a different electoral system now uh, for this election, what sort of vote do you? And I know it's a bit of a kind of stab in the door, but what sort of vote do you think would be necessary to to actually win? I mean, how many you know, votes are we, are we looking at as a winning total in this election? That really depends on turnout. Um, and Rishi Sunak is looking ever more vulnerable by the day. So, you know, we could well be heading for London elections and a general election on the same day, which would really skew, I think, the number of votes required because a general election turnout uh, is uh, significantly higher than that of a London election. In London elections, you can usually expect circa 40% of the electorate to turn out. In a general election, you'd expect high 60s, maybe even pushing 70%, um, you know, especially, I think, in the current climate. But having said that, uh, you know, the Green Party will amass their usual 8% of the vote. The Liberal Democrats will amass similar, you know, that's take 20% out of the equation uh, for those two parties. And let's add another 5% for fringe candidates uh, who are standing for uh, whatever peculiar reason uh, led them to throw £10,000 deposit at a race they'll never win. So, you know, you've got then 75% of the vote to play with. My own view is, you know, 32 33% of the vote uh, ought to get a candidate elected if you know if uh, you know George or third party does come along as a viable uh, challenger, which in the current circumstances I think it's ripe uh, to do. Um, I'll leave aside the conversation about, uh, in my view, the perversity of someone being elected with only one in three votes. Um, the threshold is low um, in order to get somebody elected, um, and yeah, my, my bet would be a third of the vote. Uh, would almost certainly get a candidate over the line. Mm-hmm. Do you have any sort of 
my idea of what that would be in, in actual hard numbers, assuming a 40% turnout, would it be about four, three or 400,000, would it be? Oh, or, I mean, it's, it's, it's marginally higher than that. So you're looking at, you're looking at probably about, I'd say, three quarters of a million, um, all in all. Uh, when George ran for the mayoralty in 2016, and of course, at that point in time, uh, you know, Palestine was not a major issue. Sadiq Khan was a fresh candidate without any record. Boris Johnson, obviously, standing down because he had just finished his, sorry, just been elected as an MP and just finishing his term as mayor. Um, you know, there wasn't really anything to hit Sadiq with. He was a fresh face promising something different. But the fact we've now had uh, seven years, no, eight years, I beg your pardon, uh, of Sadiq by the time of the election, um, you know, his record really does speak for itself. So you know, get a three quarters of a million Londoners. You could well do it. And George, of course, last time amassed, uh, including second choices, over 200,000 votes. So is it out of the question? No, it's not. No. Well, I would urge anybody who is um, disgruntled with the political class to uh, and who, who live relatively local to uh, go along and lend their support to, to George's campaign. But again, just drawing on your um, cephalogical experience, uh, uh, James, the opinion polls seem to be putting Labour well. I know this kind of narrowed a bit, but they seem to be putting Labour well ahead in the opinion polls. And yet... We're seeing these astonishing local council by-election uh, results where Labour are being trounced. I mean, you've mentioned a couple of them uh, earlier in our conversation. How, how do you account for that? I mean, are the polls just wrong or, or what's happening? Well, look, I mean, first of all, local elections aren't always indicative of a national trend, although I would say in this case, seemingly there is a trend of sorts. Um, yeah, I think there's a lack of... Uh, a national party that's been giving uh, that's been given airtime uh, by the mainstream. Um, you know, I think if uh, a pro-Palestinian left party was included in the poll uh, that's undertaken by YouGov, Savanta, Congress, whoever it may be, they would get a good chunk of uh, support. And when that option is on the ballot paper, whether it's through the Workers' Party, whether it's the Newham Independence, whether it's Aspire, uh, clearly voters are going to them in their droves, which is a real headache for Labour. Uh, it's one of the reasons why the mainstream media, in my view, uh, is so hesitant to cover alternative voices, uh, which in turn makes it so hard for people to break through. But if you look at the polling, although it shows a great Labour lead, there is no love for Keir Starmer among the general public. There's hatred for Rishi Sunak, but there is no love for Keir Starmer. Uh, which really, I think, creates an opportunity uh, at the next election uh, for an alternative to step forward. There was a recent poll that said 40% of the British public would consider voting for a new party that in its current form doesn't exist. Um, you know, there's a, there's a golden opportunity here, uh, and only time will tell whether it will actually come to uh, you know, fruition and, and break through. And unfortunately, quite a lot of that, although the influence is decreasing, does rely upon... Uh, the tabloids, the broadcast media, and others. Yeah, no, indeed. Interesting that poll you mentioned. I, I, I know there was uh, there was another poll. That, I don't know, was it about a year ago? Maybe now. I think the, it may have been slightly less than that. The Independent um, reported uh, something like two out of three people were, uh, you know, would be uh, interested in a in a in a new uh, party to to challenge both the Conservatives and the and the Labour Party. 
And on that point, uh, uh, James, uh, perhaps finally, uh, in terms of this uh, conversation today, the Workers' Party of Britain, as you may or may not have seen, have identified uh, at least 50 seats where the uh, majority that the Labour Party enjoys is significantly lower than the concern within the electorate about the situation in Palestine, the situation in particular in Gaza, which does lend it, lend an opportunity, therefore, uh, so the Workers' Party feel, for the Workers' Party to, you know, make an impact in those uh, constituencies. And, you know, we're looking to identify candidates now who might be willing to to stand in those constituencies. And, and of course, we're prepared to, you know, work with, with other you know, progressive socialist uh, 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 political parties who, who may or may not have a, a greater chance uh, in those constituencies, and indeed, for that matter, independence as well. Um, the key thing, it seems to, to us, is that we need to ensure that we try to make uh, some electoral breakthroughs and get people elected into parliament that actually will speak up for peace and speak up for economic justice for working class communities in this country, which is sadly lacking. There is nobody in, in, in well, very few people speaking up on those issues, if anybody really, in, in Parliament, maybe the odd one or two, um, but, it, but it's very few and far between. There's no kind of full-throated um, support for, a, you know, a, a, an anti-kind of neoliberal economic agenda and, and putting forward a, a, you know, economic justice and, and class politics, you know, front and centre, and indeed, speaking up for peace and speaking up for the Palestinian people. And there's a variety of reasons for that, which we've already gone into, I mean, cowardice and, uh, and pressure and all the rest of it that uh, is applied to those individuals, which, which make them unwilling to put their head, in, in these parliamentarians we're talking about, to put their head above the, the parapet. So just on that point, um, James, I mean, again, drawing on your uh, cephalogical experience, what, what's your thoughts about the Workers' Party's um, prospectus, where they feel that you know, there are at least 50 seats where you know they could make an impact and maybe you know make a, a breakthrough and actually win some of those seats. Do you think that's realistic or, or not? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, my, my advice is always uh, focus on where you think you can win and don't spread yourself too thin. Uh, that's always my advice. Uh, I do think there is an opportunity uh, in those seats and, dare I say, even in a few more uh, to make a real impact, uh, potentially in some to break through. And it's really pleasing to hear, obviously, that the Workers' Party will also liaise with uh, other um, left-wing groups. Um, because, you know, the biggest risk, as I see it, um, to uh, the left uh, is a fracturing and splintering and, you know, frankly, the infighting that we've seen, uh, you know, in the Labour Party, uh, just gets translated onto a wider ballot paper. You know, if you have the Workers' Party, Tusk, Transform, Left Unity, uh, and goodness knows who else all standing in the same seat, then if you've got potentially a 30% share there of people who want to endorse uh, a true alternative to Labour, um, that gets split and Labour get in down the middle. That's the nature of our voting system. Um, and so I do think there's a real possibility for an alternative to come through. But it requires that cooperation, those discussions to make sure everyone's efforts, insofar as possible, uh, are coordinated. Otherwise, 
what could be 30% for one group gets split into uh, 5% among six. No, indeed. And uh, I mean, ultimately, James, I uh, would like to see a situation where, you know, we may be through our endeavours. I mean, obviously, I'd love to see a Workers' Party majority, but I don't think we're even going to be able to. We haven't got the resources at the minute to, to field sufficient candidates to form a majority government. But I think uh, we might be in a situation where, you know, smaller parties like uh, the Workers' Party, if we can make a breakthrough, um, force a, a, a situation where it's a hung parliament, and then maybe we could bring about some sort of electoral reform. Uh, what's your thoughts on on that? I mean, I used to be a, an advocate of first past the post uh, when I was a dyed-in-the-wool uh, Labour activist, always felt that, well, you know, the best thing is if we can get a, you know, a strong majority Labour government. I mean, I was pretty naive because obviously you know, <laughs> a lot of the people in the Parliamentary Labour Party were ever really interested in, in, in progressive socialist and anti-imperialist uh, policies. But uh, nevertheless, that was my view that, you know, uh, that the, first past the post gives you the chance to get a a strong government. I've very much changed my view now. And I changed my view, you know, uh, well, some time ago, actually, when I was still a member of the Labour Party and when I was leading the Democracy Roadshow, one of the things I was advocating, getting thoughts about uh, from constituency party meetings all over the country was their thoughts about electoral reform and whether we should push it. And what was interesting was that even in safe Labour seats, there was a, a lot of support for it, but particularly in those seats where... I spoke where the Labour Party was a distant second or even third. That um, activists there felt that that you know their 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 votes, their campaigning in local area was pretty pointless, really, because it would never you'd never really see any 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 benefit from that in terms of electoral success. And so that resulted in you know in less activity locally, and and, and people maybe just going and campaigning in other areas. And they felt that if if there was some sort of electoral reform every vote would count and that would make them more inclined to to campaign in their in their local area and, and have a presence. So I don't know, what's your thoughts about that? And do, and do you think it's a realistic prospect that, you know, we might, um, if we can get a hung parliament, um, force the uh, the vested interests uh, to actually uh, support it in the end? Well, look, I would say, uh, should it be a Labour-Liberal-Democrat coalition, which it's probably the most likely outcome, bar a Labour majority, uh, that PR would probably be on the agenda or electoral reform would be on the agenda. Except we know what the Liberal Democrats are like, uh, and their red lines are uh, about as useful as a chocolate teapot. We saw that with tuition fees back in 2010. So uh, whilst I live in some hope, and yeah, believe me, I don't often hope for Liberal Democrats in government, but on this one issue... Whilst I hope for a Liberal Democrat voice in government, uh, simply to push electoral reform, I don't see it happening uh, anytime soon, I'm afraid. Uh, Keir Starmer, of course, when he was standing for Labour leadership, made great hay about his support for electoral reform. And despite uh, the Democratic uh, Labour conference voting for it last year, it's been completely ignored by the Labour leadership. So I don't believe We'll get that over the line anytime soon. It's of no surprise that small parties and independents typically support PR. Uh, my one caveat when it comes to electoral reform uh, is making sure that, insofar as possible, there's still a link uh, between elected representatives uh, and local uh, geographic areas and constituencies. 
um, you know, many advocate for a list system as other countries like Germany have, but for huge regions, you know, you could have MPs for all of London. But uh, my fear would be that, you know, MPs would pass the buck from one to the other. Uh, there could be huge duplication of work and indeed that lack of direct accountability that we spoke a little bit about earlier uh, when we were speaking about uh, Gaza. Now, there are other forms of PR uh, that enable um, that constituency link. Uh, you, know, you know, Germany, I come back to again, does it relatively uh, well insofar as they have constituencies and they have what they call top-up seats. Um, well, it works in a very similar way to how the London elections actually work with uh, assembly members. Uh, that I would certainly be in, fair, uh, in favour of. It redresses the balance and gives, uh, I don't like the term smaller parties, but for want of a better phrase, smaller parties a voice and representation. Um, so let's see where we end up. But unfortunately, I don't see it realistically on the table happening anytime soon. Well, it's always, I mean, look, Tony Blair, even, you know, back in the day, I think, like, like Sir Keir Starmer spoke uh, supportively about PR, but then when they, you know, push came to shove, they never ever followed through with it. But then I think perhaps what we need to uh, hold uh, through to is um, Nelson Mandela's uh, uh, maxima, that it always seems impossible until it's done. And there are, there are many, many areas of, of, of uh, public life where, uh, it might seem impossible, but uh, but we need to push for them, you know. And when it's done, then yeah, well, we'll yeah, it was always it was always on the cards. I'm sure people will will no doubt say they always supported it. <laughs> but anyway, let's wait and see um, uh, what what happens there. But thanks very much indeed, uh, James, for taking the time out to speak to us uh, this evening. My pleasure. Uh, really, good to, uh, really good to have you on the show again. Thank you, everybody. For watching today, we hope to be back at the same time next week. So until then, this is Chris Williams saying bye for now.